Honestly, how awful did they sound? Okay, I told them to play that way. Now everybody sit down, all right? I'm gonna explain this a little. Oh, let me just explain this to you. Now last week, if you remember right, in the book of Romans, we talked about God and God has this song and this, this melody that he's singing out over the entire, and again, we were being metaphorical and this rhythm to life. And the problem is we don't mean to, but we get out of tune and we get out of rhythm. And this band was a great example of what the Romans <laughs> sounded like, all right? Okay, now just, you, you, you're starting to see this has a, it's a beautiful now metaphor. You, you guys can go sit down now. It's all good. They're tuning their instruments. They're like, I, when I came to Billy, I'm like, hey, this is what we could do. And I can tell for like musicians to play awful. It's like, <sighs> but I said, just, just go for it. Now here's the deal. Paul is writing this letter to this church in Rome and he's talking about what it is we're supposed to, and again, metaphorically sound like and the rhythm of what we're supposed to be. And this was a perfect example of what happens to all of us. We don't mean to, we get out of tune and we get off rhythm. And when you put a bunch of musicians together like the church, and then you say play and be the people of God, it just sounds awful sometimes. And whether it's an instrument that is played or unplayed, we need to be retuned. And so what Paul's doing in the book of Romans is that exact thing. He's writing a letter to them to retune them, to call them back to the rhythm. And every aspect about what he's going to do is he's going to present this idea of who God is and what he's doing in this world. And, and so it helps to create this rhythm. And so that's what we looked at last week. We tried to really explore and understand what it is. And for them, it was a Jew-Gentile issue. But here's the problem that we face. Every last one of us in this room, whether we know it or not, has a tendency to, to be conformed to the image of this, this world, to be conformed to what this world is doing. The world is constantly almost like a siren beckoning out, right, and calling us to it. And whether, whether we can see it or not, that song draws us in. And there's so many people that have been shipwrecked on the rocks. I mean, I was just even talking to a friend today about a good buddy of his at another church, another place in, in, in the United States that heard the siren call and when he heard the siren call, he forgot the song, the, the anthem that we're called to be by and dashed life on the rocks for just a little bit. And by the way, all of us can do that. All of us have that tendency, that propensity to hear the wrong song. Now what Paul's talking about in this and when he's kind of working it through, he was talking about not only the offbeat, but again, they were, they were beginning to listen to a wrong song, which is laid out in Romans 1.18 through 3.20. In Romans 1, 18 through 320, he grabs both the Gentile, he grabs the moralist, the philosopher, he grabs the Jew and looks at all of them and says, from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes, you're just flat out sinful. You're all off tune. Now, the greatest news in the world is this is why Jesus came into this world to rescue us, not just from being off tune, but the reality of being off tune, let me just put it to you this way, is really what we start to do then is we start to then, Paul says, exchange the truth of God for a lie. And when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, we then begin to embrace idols. And as we embrace idols, that's why God's wrath is coming to this earth. And so it's not just a small thing, it's a huge thing. And I would say this for Cornerstone, this is what we have to constantly do. We have to retune, we have to get back on rhythm because we don't mean to, but we get off. Now, the crazy part about getting off that he's talking about is both religious, philosophical. I would even say this in our world. Remember these slides up here? Anybody remember what this is called? Silent disco. Did anybody go do it this week? 
Okay, and now, then granted, it's on video if you want to see my dance moves because they really did, they affected people last week. In fact, we had somebody come to know the Lord through my dance moves. I'm totally kidding. But in it, it's this idea in which we don't even mean to, but we can start to put on different headphones. And in putting on these different headphones and listening to these different things in the world, we begin to kind of congregate around one another as we think about it. So we might buy into a lie that says the real story of this world is the American story. That's not true. The real story is my making a ton of money and being successful and rich. The real story is safety inside of my family. The real story, again, all these different things, but we can buy into a false story. Now, in the United States, we have this idea with our story, the, the, the idea of kind of our rhythm is that, you know, you can just believe whatever you want to believe. And in fact, they did this study onto it, and this is what they found. This guy that did this study, Joel Ackenbach, he said, look, the information glut is hardly the apocalypse that some imagined that might come around the millennium. In other words, all these ideas and thoughts everywhere, but look at this. The world's not ending, it's just becoming what? It doesn't make sense anymore. He's just saying we're living in a world that doesn't make any sense. We're, we're, we're hearing this rhythm and this melody all around us all the time that doesn't make any sense. And slowly, one by one, in different kinds of ways, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Now, last week was all about a song, but this is where we're going to go this week, okay? We're going to switch metaphors, and we're going to talk about a story. Now, in this story, out of everything, God is announcing to the entire world that the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, the day-to-day pours out speech, night-to-night reveals knowledge. In other words, God all the time is announcing that I am here. And I couldn't remember the Dr. Seuss movie where they kept saying, we are here. What's that movie? Horton, here's a hill, gosh. This morning I was trying to remember. Do you remember Horton? They're like, we are here, we are here. And I think in so many ways God is announcing it, but what's the problem? Is that we're not listening. That's why Paul writes to the people that he does in, in Romans 1, and he says to them, we're calling them to obedience of faith. We're telling, telling them to hupakue. We're calling them now to come under and listen, listen for God. Now, he's, the good news is for all of us is that we can hear God. That's what Paul wants us to get to in Romans 12, is that on one level, you can discern the will of God. You can hear what he's saying. And not only can you hear what he's saying, but what he is saying is good. It's the best. It's what humanity has longed for. And so that's how we finished last week, was just this idea, are you wanting to listen to God? Are you wanting to listen to the music that God is putting out? Again, metaphorically, are we wanting to hear the melody, the rhythm? And that's the question I left you with. Now, this week, we're going to ask a different question, like I said, around story, is do you want to or are we living or obeying, again, listening under the correct story? Now, story is kind of a weird term, and we kind of throw it around. You'll hear us talk about this idea of the story of God, and, and I think in some ways it's just difficult because we kind of are like, oh, is that just kind of a neat teaching tool, or, or what are you talking about? Well, whenever we talk about the concept of a story, let me make sure you get this, is a story is a way that we kind of define life, or even another way I would say it is, it's the way we make sense of life, right? So almost everybody came in, hey, how are you doing, you know, and they began to tell me a story of yesterday. Yesterday didn't make sense outside of a story. They could have come in and said, um, yard work, uh, yelling kids, um, you know, whatever other bullet points they had, and I would have been like, I don't gotcha. But then if they would have said, yes, you know, I took my son out and we started to work in the yard. He was lazy. I had to yell at him. Then after I yelled at him, I felt bad. So then I kicked the dog, right? Suddenly it made sense what he was trying to tell me. 
That wasn't me, by the way. That was just another guy named Todd. <laughs> but in this, it's how we make sense of the world. Or not only that, maybe it's how we create context for the world that we live in. It's the way also that I would say we, we create direction. So in other words, when I sit down and talk with somebody, this idea of direction, every single one of you in this room has an idea of where we've come from, why the world is messed up, how the world's gonna get fixed, and where the world's going. And in fact, whatever you believe about each of those four things, you will live by that story. So if you believe that we came from nothing, that somehow matter and energy collided together in this unexplainable way, and out of nothing came this entire universe, that's how you will directionally live your life. If you believe the world got messed up because people caused it, which by the way is almost the number one reason why almost anybody in this nation, regardless of what they believe, our world is a mess because of people, you will live your life in a certain way. The interesting part about it is, is that in our nation, we actually believe people can solve the problem. And because of that then, they're then choosing to live a certain way. And if then you believe this world will just kind of collapse into nothingness, you'd live a certain way. In other words, what you believe is the story of this world, that is how you will choose to live. So therefore, it's not just a story as a concept, it is a way of looking at life. Now this person named Arthur Dobrin, I thought captured it well, he just said, look, stories or he said, this narratives provide a way of understanding our place in the scheme of things by structuring our understanding of events. They root us in an ongoing stream of history and they provide us a sense of belonging, and helping to establish our identities. In other words, life makes no sense without a story. There's another person that kind of wrote this through and I appreciated the way they put it. We always talk about how we wanna change people within Simi Valley or maybe the West Valley or even Moore Park or Thousand Oaks. We talk about wanting to reach our world, but listen to what this person talked about. They said, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths, becomes the preferred story, one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past, our present into a coherent whole, one that even shines into our future so that we can take the next step. And then he said this, if you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. Now here's what's crazy about how we are. Back in 2008, a man named Barack Obama came along and he started telling the people a story. And in it, they begin to hear this story and understand this story. And you would sit there, and I, I'm kind of always an observer of people. I love watching and just seeing what people happen. The story of hope that he shared with people moved millions of people to go vote for him. Then, eight years later, a guy named Donald Trump told a little bit different of a story. And what happens? Millions of people begin to flock to him. Now here's what we're doing, and this is the greatest news in the world. The story of the Bible is the only true, only comprehensive story that can be told. It is the only story which you can set your life by because it has the actual reality of where we came from, the actual reality of why the world's a mess, the actual reality of where this world is going, and the actual reality of how this world is going to be fixed. And it is found in one person, Jesus Christ. We have the story, and it's a true story. The hard part about fake stories is you can't kind of tell them for very long, but we have the true story. Not only that, but Leslie Leyland Fields, I, th I love the way she put this. She said, listen, all our human stories of heroes, monsters, journeys, and sacrifice give voice to our universal quest for identity, purpose, and deliverance. Instead of competing with God's story, which I believe other stories do, but just go with me, these stories gesture 
records it. All of humanity tells stories and they tell about what's going on in the world, but in the back of all those stories, they actually are moving towards God and they don't even know it. Another aspect, Michael Horton, he put it this way, the gospel then is not just a series of facts to which we yield our assent, but a dramatic narrative that replots our identity. In all of us, we need to recommit ourselves all of the time to the one true story, God's story. And it can't be by bullet points and it can't be by lists because stories is how we stay in there and it's how we remember. So the question is then, how did Paul do it? Well, what we're gonna do, and again, this might sound a little boring, just go with me though, just go with me, it's gonna be awesome. Whenever there's a story, there's five things, okay? Everybody gonna remember this. You gotta remember these five things and how we're gonna go in order for you to really get this today. One is every story has characters. Every story has setting. Every story has a plot. Every story then after that has a conflict and every story has a resolution. I don't care how you tell the story. In fact, it was so funny. Yesterday I sat down with a guy and I said, how's your day going? He comes in, he goes, well, let me tell you something, man. I've really been struggling, you know, with, with, uh, with my son character. He said, not only that, but man, we were hanging out outside in the, in, the, in the yard yesterday, setting, and all of a sudden, all of it just began to explode. Plot, conflict, and then he's looking at me and saying, what's the resolution? We talk in that way. Now, what Paul's going to do for us, though, is he's actually going to lay out for us this idea of character, of setting, of plot, of conflict, of resolution. And while the, the whole idea in the first part of it, the characters and the setting might change, the plot never changes. The, then not only that, the conflict never changes, but the resolution never changes. Now watch what he does here. This is, this is cool. Uh, we'll go past this one. Watch what he does. Here's the characters. The first one, Paul. The second one is prophets. The second one, David. Look in this one. He keeps going on. The next one he talks about is the nations, and he talked about you. Now, all throughout the book of Romans, he's going to lay out different characters, and all these different characters are going to change and ebb and flow, but inside of a story, there are not only main characters, but there are also the supporting cast. So in this particular case, he lays it out, and Paul would be one of the supporting cast, the prophets would be one of the supporting cast, even the nations of the supporting cast, but the thing that he doesn't want us to miss is who is the main character. Now, this is where I think we as people struggle greatly. The main character he tells us is Christ Jesus. The main character he tells us is God. The main character he tells us in this case is his son. The main character he tells us in this is the son of God, the spirit, Jesus Christ, the Lord, his name, Jesus Christ. In other words, the main character in every aspect of the Bible is our triune God, period, end of story. He is the main character. Now, again, we struggle with that, don't we? Like one time I was on the set of, of a movie that was being filmed, right? And they're doing their thing. And I so wanted to like dive in there and be like, ha, ah, here I am. I would have got kicked off the lot. But I'm watching this whole thing develop and everything in me wanted to go be the star of the show. The problem is, though, is I wasn't even a supporting actor. In fact, they were going to let me be a hand model, but they changed their name because my hands didn't look good. I was so sad. I know, I'm okay, though. I worked through it. But I'm not the main character. There's one main character. 
That main character that Paul talks about in Colossians says not only did he make this world, but the other thing is, is he made everything for himself. Jesus wasn't just creating this world now to kind of turn it loose, wind it up, and then let it go, and for us to just become the star of our own show. Everything about the Bible is the star of the show is our triune God, and there is no other. In fact, this is the way that Rick Warren put it in The Purpose Driven Life. A lot of you might, might have read it, but he just said this. You were made for God, not vice versa. All of life is about letting God use you for his purposes, not you're using him for your own purposes. That's a great quote. Now, this is important because I think in all of us, when we go back to Augustine, this is what we were designed for. This is not only what we were designed for, this is what we rebel against because we want to be the star. But this is what Augustine said. He said, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If you keep trying to be the main character, you are gonna be restless. But until you see that you were created for God and by God, that's finally when you're able to rest in who he is. Not only that, but I would put it this way. Once you rest, you'll see what you were created for. The other day, we went to go watch a game. We went to go watch the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, and, and I'm, you, anybody knows me, I'm a huge Mets fan. And so last night was a really good night. But um, the Dodgers won, not the Mets. Anyway, so, but I went to the game and I'm watching this. And I love, as I said, watching crowds. And in this particular game, there was the Dodgers were tied, right? And everything seemed to be careening downhill. And suddenly, towards the very end of the game, the Dodgers start to go off. And what was funny is some of our staff, we, we took them to that. They'd already left, but the rest of us that are stayed, that are the, the good Christians, we stayed there and we were watching the game. And suddenly, right, the Dodgers, like, they put one on base and then two on base. And a guy comes up, right? And we're like, no way, what's going to happen? And the whole crowd is up. And I'm not even a Dodger fan, but I'm finding myself like high five with other Dodger fans. I'm like, woo And I'm going around and I don't even like the Dodgers. What happened? We get caught up in something bigger than ourselves. On one end, we don't want it, but on the other end, don't you believe this? All of us want to be involved in something bigger than ourselves. We long for it. Deep within, we know we're not the main character. And in that longing for it, we find it, researchers say, not only in games, but has anybody ever been to a concert before and the whole concert's just like, Rah! and you just feel yourself like totally getting carried away, you know, maybe for those of you that grew up when I did, you know, like, you know, White Snake or Slayer or something like that, right? You just like, oh, no, I'm kidding. But you know, that concert, you just get caught up in it. Everything is about because we know deep within ourselves, there's something bigger than us. And this is what Paul's wanting them to know. So what's the setting? Well, the setting in this place is in, in Rome. That's what we find out. He's writing this particular letter to Rome. But here's the thing about the gospel. You can't stop the gospel. It wants to keep moving. He says in there, it's a gospel for all the nations. There's a good news for every person that Jesus Christ is truly the King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, I would put it this way. We have a story that announces King Jesus. That's really what he's saying. The gospel isn't even primarily first about you and me. The gospel is primarily first about Jesus Christ, the one who was born of the line of David, who came and conquered death and overcame the evil one. And is also this one that when he was nailed to the tree, sin was done away forever. That's the primary good news. But in this setting, it's a message that's supposed to go everywhere. It's a message that can't be contained. 
It's a message that started off in this little nation inside of Palestine and it began to spread all over the world. And if you think about this, now on every continent all around the world, the gospel has been delivered. There's still other nations that need to hear it, but this message can't be stopped. The setting is intended to go everywhere. So what's the plot? Well, the plot's just kind of the story. It tells us what it is it's about. It tells us what's going on. And in fact, I would say this, until we know what the plot is, until we know what God is doing, we kind of don't understand then what we're supposed to do with the story. Now, in this case, look at the plot. Let me show you. This is what you're gonna see. He tells us about the gospel of God. Now, listen to what he says about the gospel of God. He said, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, here's the key, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What is God trying to do in this world? Bring Jesus Christ to bear in all places so that people now might come to him in obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's the plot. Now, what does that mean? That concept for the sake of his name becomes huge. When we ask the question of why did God make us, here's the answer, for the sake of his name. Why did God create the world for the sake of his name? Why did God send his son, Jesus Christ, for the sake of his name? Why is he doing anything, and here's the answer, for the sake of his name? The concept of name is a weird thing in kind of our culture today because name, generally what it means is, you know, that's how we identify you. That's how we know how to scream if we need you, you know, those types of things. But a name back then meant something so much more. It meant everything. It meant everything of who that person is and was and will be. When you had somebody and you had their name, what it meant was, is when you had their name, you had all of them. For the sake of the name meant that Paul was delivering a message into all places so that the lordship of Jesus might not just be a concept or something that we just kind of believe in and make it a mental ascent, but it's intended to change everything. It's intended to change how we're married and how we're single. It's intended to change how we parent. It's intended to change how we look at the entire aspect of the world because when God came, he intended for this entire world to finally be what he's intended. Intended, that's what it means to be for his namesake. He wants us not to just live in this sin-infested world forever. He's got big plans. Now in these big plans, you can see this. It's about the obedience of the faith. It's at the very end in chapter 16, this obedience to the faith. It just means this faith that produces obedience. In other words, we become the people that he intended us to be. He become the people that he has always seen it. And I would say even this way, from the way that Augustine put it, we finally find our rest because we're doing what God's created us to do. So what's the fourth thing, the conflict? What's the conflict? Well, the conflict in the book of of Romans has to do with a group of people that don't want to live under the obedience of faith. That's just everybody. In other words, God has created us to live a certain way. We've rejected him. We've gone a different direction. We've chosen now to make our life all about ourselves. And Jesus Christ came to transform that, which kind of sets us up then for the resolution. What's the resolution? That Jesus Christ's name would be named over the entire world. Now, everything within this story all revolves in those five things in the book of Romans. That's how you look at the book. 
One, the characters, the main characters are triune God. The rest of us are characters that fill the other slots. The setting, it goes all over the world. The plot is that the name of Jesus goes into every nation and all over the place, that the name of Jesus now might permeate everything and transform things. The conflict, we're going to run into groups of people, including ourselves, that want to make this about themselves. But the resolution is, is that King Jesus will win. Those are the five things. Now, in order to understand Romans, if you don't understand those five things, Romans will not make sense to you. We tend to make it about my personal salvation, and it's not less than that. Jesus does want to save us and rescue us. He does want to rescue us from definitely an eternity apart from him in in the lake of fire. He wants to give us new life like we've never imagined. But first and primarily, it's not me. It's Jesus. And if I don't see that, I am never going to understand the book of Romans. He's the main character. Now, what I want to do is now I want to show you this inside of a really difficult passage for you to understand, which is Romans 9 through 11. Now, in the book of Romans, and you've got your Bibles, go to Romans 8, 38 through 39. Let me, let me just take you there and let me show you where I'm going to kind of help you understand this whole thing. At the end of chapter 8, which is this big, long build into the book of Romans, Paul now gets to the very end and he says this statement, which I think all of us that are followers of Jesus love, when he says, I am unsure, or I am unsure, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever read that before and said, amen, but after reading that, all God's people said? Okay, now, here's the question. If that's true, what happened to the Jews? Are they rejected? Is God unfaithful? That's what they were asking. In fact, I would say this. At the bottom of this question for all of us is the question, can I trust God? That's really what they're asking here. They're about ready to ask this question, okay, if God is really this way, if neither height nor depth nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God, if that's really true, then in the back of our heads, what happened to the Jewish people? If I'm going through cancer right now and it is brutally difficult and I might die, where's God in this? Can I trust him? With my child that's going off the deep end and I'm not sure what to do with that child as they begin to wrestle and struggle through life, can I trust him? As I'm watching, as even my children begin to leave and walk away from the faith, what do I do with this thing, God? Can I trust you? As my spouse begins to reject me in any kind of a way, can I trust you? As I lose my job, or even as I get exalted and employed in a different way within my job, God, can I trust you? See, at the core of this question, again, I'm going to keep coming back to this all the time in the book of Romans, can we trust God? Good answer. But why? Now, using those five things, our characters, our setting, our plot, our conflict, and our resolution, Paul's going to use these five things to begin to explain to us an extremely difficult passage. And he's going to take us back to the story. Now, just watch this. He's going to quote scripture more times within Romans 9 through 11 than anywhere else in the book of Romans. He's going to go to Genesis three times, Malachi once, Exodus twice, Isaiah once, Hosea. Then he's going to come back to Isaiah four times, and that's just chapter 9. Then in chapter 10, it's Leviticus, Deuteronomy twice, Isaiah, Joel, Isaiah, Nahum, Isaiah, Psalms, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah. Do you get kind of a point of why we studied Isaiah first? 
Romans 11, 1 Samuel, Psalms, 1 Kings twice, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms, Isaiah two times, and then Job. In other words, he's going to take us back into the true story of God, and he's going to build the case for why you and I can trust God. So why can we? Well, one of the first things you have to understand is that anytime we talk about the idea of trusting God, it always comes with heartache. Now, in this particular context, Paul, as a Jewish man, is watching as the Jewish people are rejecting Jesus Christ. Look at the words he uses up there. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Who prays that? He's broken. Anytime we start asking questions about can I trust God, there's a brokenness to it, a heartache, a hurt. In fact, he goes on and he says this, these Israelites, they belong to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race and according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed for every amen. Oh my gosh, why are they missing this reality? Have you ever thought that before? All those times that we share Jesus or watch somebody walk away, we're just like, oh God, why are they missing this thing? And Paul in the back of his heart knows what they're asking. Man, Kent, what's up going on? His heart is that they would be saved. His heart was that they would truly be the people that God intended them. So has God rejected his people? Now watch what he's going to do here. The answer is by no means, or it's this Greek word I'm going to teach you today. Ready? May genoita. Say it back to me. See, you just talk Greek. You're smart. It means heck no. No way. Not at all. Why, Paul? He says, just look at me. I'm one of those Israelites. I'm a descendant, and yet I'm in this. So has he rejected the Jewish people? His point is, no. Now, using those five things from his story now, he's going to construct for us then, what are we supposed to do? It is the word of God failed. That's his question. Now, what he does here now is he grabs Abraham, a character who happens to be just, again, one of those things that's a supporting cast for this person, this triune person of God. And he puts Abraham into this particular mix and he says to him, what was the point of God when he created a relationship with Abraham? Well, making this relationship with Abraham, he promised him that I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you the father of many people. You're, in fact, you're going to have so many people that are going to be your people that they're going to be as the, as the sands of the sea. It's going to be huge. But he also promised him that there's going to be a one that's going to come out of you, a promise that's going to be through Sarah, your wife, and that's my promise to you. And what did God do? He did exactly that. Now, on one hand, he had Ishmael, if you know the story of that, back in the book of Genesis, through Hagar. This kind of the, it was kind of a weird series of events that we won't go into right now. But he has this one son, but it wasn't through him. God says to you, I promise to give you a son through Isaac, and that's going to be the promise of everything. You can trust me. What's he doing here? He's laying out the characters. He's laying out the setting. He's laying out the plot. What's the plot? I will make you now a one who you will be a blessing to the nations. Well, then the next question he needs to ask is, so what happened to Isaac? Well, in this long reality of events now, he's now going to work through this guy named Isaac, who's going to be the one who's going to be the the man of promise. And we see it in here, down in verse 12, is that the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. So in other words, now we learn that God, and I'll put this in quotes now, hated Esau. Well, that sounds harsh. What are you talking about? 
Well, this whole long line of things, what God is doing is, is he's showing, no, through Abraham and Isaac and even the choice of Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup shows you how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man works together. But at the end of it was God saying to him, you cannot stop what I'm gonna be doing. I made a promise to Abraham and I'm going to keep it. Even by the time he comes to the Jews that were around within Jesus' day, we even see that he won't quit. And why won't he quit? Well, he pulls back from Moses, another character, to land out this idea that we learned. The Pharaoh, he said, this very purpose, I've raised you up. Now watch this. It comes right back to our plot. That I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I am going to fulfill my promise. Through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, my name will be proclaimed in all of the earth. In fact, that is the plot that never changes. It always keeps going. It's the message that we deliver to the world all of the time. We think life is about all these different things. Life is about this message that announces that Jesus is king and he's now calling all of his, uh, those to know him and his name to be proclaimed throughout the earth. It's being called to be proclaimed not just in Palestine or in Rome or even in Paul's letter in 1524 and 28. We learn that he goes on to Spain. It is this message must keep going all over the place. And all of us sitting here today, the reason that we're here is because you can't stop that name from moving forward. God's promise was set and nothing could stop it. Even when the Jewish people rejected him and hung Jesus on a cross, this is what's so crazy. The day that they hung him on the cross, they didn't realize it, but they were unleashing his name then to go over the world in a way that they could never imagine. The idea is, is that Jesus can't be stopped even by those who reject him. Well, again, this story still kind of seems like, well, what's the resolution? What are you talking about? Well, in this story we find out in Romans 9, 25 through 26, is that not only does he tend his name to go forward, but also he's now going to come back and he's going to hit the people of Ishmael and Esau, all of those that are rejectors. We're going to find out one day there's going to be a mass revival within the people of Israel that they're going to be drawn to Jesus. In other words, the promise that he made all the way back to Abraham, the idea is, is that you can't stop it. And all of you sitting in this room today, this was Paul's point. You're a part of the greatest thing of all time that cannot be stopped. The announcing of Jesus' name in the entire earth. We are a part of it. He wants us to get this and feel this and know this. He wants us to embrace it and live it. He wants us to see this as our story. He wants us to see that this is what we're a part of. So that's the characters, the setting, the plot. It's the conflict, it's the resolution. Now in this particular context, and this is where I want to bring it, in this particular reality, that was the people of Rome. But while the characters might change, and the setting might change, the one thing that never changes is the plot, the conflict, and the resolution. And let me tell you something. The people of Rome were the next characters, but now we're it. We're the characters. You ever thought about that? We're it. We're the people that throughout time, God has wove this together. When Paul wrote the Romans, he wanted them to understand, you're it. You're now in the story. You're a part of it. You got written in. On March 19th, 1993, who would have ever thought God would write Todd into this story? 
Who would have ever thought that any of you sitting in this room that know Jesus would have been written into this story as one of those supporting cast characters to join Jesus in wherever in the setting it goes all around the world, that you would be, make your life about this plot, this amazing plot of allowing King Jesus to be known so that his name might permeate the entire world so that the Gentiles and the Jews, everyone, can come into this obedience of faith of Jesus Christ. To understand the book of Romans, you need to see yourself in it. You're a part of it. This grand story that's woven throughout time, you're in it. You were wrote, written in by, I almost said wrote, that sounds like I'm from Wyoming. You were written into it. You were written into it in this amazing reality that you now might join him. So what does joining him even look like? Joining him looks like now you jumping into every setting and asking this one really important question. And I would say this, write this question down because it's one of the most important questions that you can ask yourself. In this situation, how do I make a name for God? That's really the question. Now here's the good news. No matter what it is, you can make a name for him. So that means if in your marriage, you can make a name for him whether you have a good marriage or a struggling marriage. In parenting, oh my gosh, parenting. God help us. As our kids and us go through the bobbing and the weaving of the difficulties of life, no matter what it is, we're asking this question, God, in this particular scenario, no matter what it is, how do I make a name for you? If this is truly the plot of our story, if this is what all of life is about, in this moment, help me not to make this story about myself and think my kid has just ruined my day, but help me to realize that right now, I get to make a name for you. In your vocation, when you go to work, you don't go to work to make money. You go to work to make a name. That means if you have a good boss, man, go make a name for Jesus. If you have a bad boss, boy, you are set up to make a great name for Jesus. It means then also in our sickness, even when we get the big C, cancer, whether we live or we die, Paul said, whether I live or die is Christ. Make a name. In my friendships, make a name and how I involve myself in the world that I live in. Make a name. When I'm out doing my recreation, make a name. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or sleep, no matter what you do, give glory to God. Make a name. Every single day, we are now the characters that are joining God, and I don't know if I'm conveying how amazing this is, but this is our time. We're it. In Simi Valley, in the west end of the valley, in Moor Park, in Thousand Oaks, no matter where you're from, we're it along with all the other believers. We're the ones that now get to enter into this world to make a name for Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, on the soccer fields, in the baseball fields, in the schools in which we attend. We're it. Now here's the question I have for you today, right now. Do you want to be in this story? Do you want it? See, everything in where Cornerstone's gonna be going over the next few years is I don't want a bunch of people sitting around occupying space in here, I don't. And again, that's not a judgment call on anybody, including me. I wanna go. I wanna be with a group of people that say, yeah, let's make it about his name. I wanna live the plot. 
I want to be a part of the conflict. I want to dive in and be a part of that resolution. God, may we play the part that you've given us to join you in whatever you're doing, whether it's here or even why we believe in global ministry, to go to the nations. This is our time. This is it. This is our one life. I was thinking about this the other day. This is our only life. There's no do-overs. There's no remakes. There's a lot of I should-haves and I could-haves and I would-haves. But oh, to be a group of people that with one voice said, as a sub-character, as a supporting cast of Jesus, in our setting in Simi Valley, in Southern California, We joined King Jesus in this plot of making his name great and calling people into the faith that produces this amazing obedience that people might be the people God's intended them to be, to understand the conflict, to join him in the resolution. And this is the question you have to ask in the back of your head. Do you want this? Do you want this? This week, all throughout the week, ask yourself that question. God, do I really want your story? Now, let me be honest with you then. If you want his story, it gets rocky sometimes. It starts to roll. It starts to ebb. It starts to flow. But I promise you at the end of it, it's a story that you will never regret. Living for Jesus wholeheartedly, not halfway, wholeheartedly is a story that none of us will regret. And all God's people said, all right. I'm going to bring Billy and the band up. Would you join me? Let's pray. Father, right now, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, unleash and open our eyes to the reality of what you're doing in this world. Oh, God, I feel like in some ways, like I didn't convey it as I needed to. And so would you right now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, just enable people to grasp and see this. God, would Cornerstone be a church that continues in the trajectory you set 25 or so years ago of a church that's not just going to sit here in a building and just consume tax-exempt status, but God, would you unleash us with the gospel? Would our schools be different, Father? I beg you because we joined you. Would our workplaces and our neighborhoods be different because we joined you? Would new people resound with the goodness of Jesus? Would we in everything that we are, with this city, with this area, just start to sound the good news of Jesus in all places. Father, would the Lordship come to bear in such a powerful and a real way that stories begin to be told of your powerful work amongst your people. And Father, I am totally cool if you start here with Cornerstone. Do your work in your precious name. Amen.